Hi there, it's Nick here. Thanks so much for your continued support of the Nick Luck Daily Podcast. Wherever you consume your podcast, it is great to have you with us. I would alert you again to the racing app which is your one-stop shop and the easiest place now to download the show each and every morning as soon as it's ready. Many of you are doing so already, and that's not just because you can get access to all 880 episodes of this show, and very easily as well, but you can also watch live races. You can watch all the replays, and you can stream in the card with an active Fitstairs account. So do download it now, uh, the racing app. It's your one-stop shop and you will be able to catch up on all the previous episodes of your favourite daily racing podcast. You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. Monday, December the 18th, and we will be with you every weekday from now until Christmas Day. Thanks for listening once again uh, to the Nick Luck Daily podcast. Uh, lots to look forward to through the next uh, half an hour or so, particularly a look back on some uh, racing at Cheltenham over the weekend, which I think you'd say in, in some respects delivered more than it promised, and certainly some uh, noteworthy stories upon which to reflect as well, both good and quite sad. We'll also be reflecting on the career of Damien Oliver, the greatest of all time, uh, many of our Australian colleagues uh, will call him, and he brought his career to a glorious conclusion in his home state over the weekend. Congratulations to him. Uh, first, however, the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board have published a document that sets out their agenda through the, the next four years. It's not that long. It only runs to about 16 pages. Uh, Lydia is with me this morning. Lydia, what are the what are the bones of this? Well, they want to set out their strategy for the next five years, uh, four or five years, and uh, they want to essentially reassure the public and the taxpayer in Ireland that they are getting good value for money, that the sport is very professionally run, that it has the highest levels of integrity and uh, welfare, both for humans and horses. And they want to assure public trust. So they've set out, it's very corporate, the document and the, the language that it uses, sets out five pillars, people, integrity, welfare, digital and governance. And they talk about the ambitions that they wish, wish to reach and the methods by which they they hope to achieve those things if they are uh, sufficiently financed, which is a, a point we'll come back to. Well, joining me now is Dara O'Loughlin, the Chief Executive of the IHRB. Dara uh, took the role on the 29th of June 2022, so has been in situ 18 months. You've had a little bit of time to get your feet under the table, Dara. You've released this statement of strategy, 16 pages. We'll go into some more detail in a moment. Obvious question, why have you done this? Every organization, Nick, has to have a strategy. Every organization needs to have a direction of travel. Um, so it was, and our previous statement of strategy here, a strategic plan took the organization from 2019 to 2023. It, the timing was ideal for me, as you said, I'm a year and a half in the role now. We've been working on this strategy through 2023, just to make sure we got it right. We want to be sure that the organization has the right vision, the right purpose, the right values, uh, the right objectives, and is going in the right direction. I think a clear strategy helps everybody, helps people identify with the organization, understand what it's here for, what it's trying to achieve, the manner in which it wants to achieve it. 
our vision is very straightforward. We want to assure public trust in Irish horse racing through best-in-class regulatory and integrity processes. That's our North Star, if you like. Everything we do has to be aimed at achieving that. The purpose of this organization is to safeguard the reputation of horse racing through robust and transparent regulatory practices implemented with uncompromising integrity by a focused and professional team. You're not going to find any disagreement from anybody, and nor are you with all the pillars and pie charts and um, buzzwords you've got in this 16-page document. The question is, is execution. Where do you think the IHRB has been deficient so far? In your in your 18 months, where have you thought, this is where we really, really need to do better relative perhaps to the rest of the world? Rather than finding fault or seeking to find fault with the organisation here, what I'll say is I've identified a lot of opportunities for improvement. And the expectations of the public, the racing public and the general public through the taxpayer who funds us, constantly shifting expectations and an expectation of ever higher standards. And we need to meet that expectation and get ahead of it if we can. The world is changing and changing dramatically outside of horse racing. There is an expectation of attention to detail. There's an expectation of greater collaboration and consultation across an industry now than perhaps might have been the case years ago. There's an expectation of greater transparency than would have been the case a number of years ago. These are all opportunities for us to meet and exceed the expectations of the public by improving our transparency, by improving our reporting, by engaging more closely with stakeholders and consulting on changes, making sure people understand the changes we're trying to bring in and what the changes are trying to achieve. And then on the the pointy end of what we do, the regulation itself, whether that's stewarding decisions on race day or our referrals committee and appeals body, the disciplinary process. Achieving consistency there is important. People people now want to see consistency in the decisions that are made, to see a measure of consistency in sanctions that are given out for offences. They want to see sanctions handed down for, for example, anti-doping offences. They want to see meaningful sanctions that act as a deterrent and they also want to have access to information about who's been disciplined, who's been sanctioned, for what, what sanctions have been put in place. Yeah. And the organization has been good at putting that information out, publishing referrals, hearings, information, and appeals body information on the website, putting up the stewarding decisions at the end of the day. But we can improve on that transparency. For example, the referrals, hearings, and appeals hearings over the course of 2024, and I can't give you a date yet, but it will be during 2024, we will move to having those hearings open to the racing media. So the public will have access to them to them through the media. So while we're already putting out comprehensive reports, there's nothing quite like a third-party report of a hearing. When you read court hearings being reported in newspapers or more maybe appropriately, you read about disciplinary hearings across other professions and other industries, whether it's vets or doctors or dentists or lawyers, the disciplinary hearings tend to be held in public by default. So they're reported in the media. Look, there'll be hearings where there's sensitive information being discussed. It could be health information relating to a licensee. 
those on application could be heard in private. But the default should be that the media is welcome to come in and report on the hearings and to report in the proceedings. That'll help with public understanding of what we do. That'll help to assert our identity as the regulatory body. You know, we're not a club. We're not a promotional organization. We're here to make and enforce the rules of racing. And I think we have no reason to fear showing people how we do that. Can we talk about <coughs> anti-doping? You mentioned adequate deterrence and transparency. We spoke on this podcast last week about the Tony Martin case. He's received a, a six-month suspended sentence um, for three doping offences in four years. Do you think that's an adequate deterrent? Just to clarify, he got a fine and a withdrawal of his license, which was suspended for the third offence. It's not a cumulative thing across all three. And do I think that that's a deterrent? Uh, well, but there's still, still time for him today to appeal that. That decision was only published last Monday, and it's Monday today. There would be differing opinions. And as I've said to you before, I don't like to come on and criticise our referrals or appeals bodies. Uh, sometimes it can be easier to understand decisions that they make than other times. And I have to say, I'm not convinced that imposing a suspension and then suspending the suspension has a the same deterrent effect as actually imposing a suspension. So I'll, t I'll take that as a no, you don't think it's a, an adequate deterrent. No, so You can take it as a long-winded answer that didn't quite get to the point. <laughs> well, you said it, not me. Uh, so what are you going to do about it? How? I mean, you, you say you're going to um, sort out these sanctions, and indeed um, making sanctions an adequate deterrent was a key plank of the report put forward by Craig Swan. And in this document that you've released today, you say you are going to continue to implement the recommendations in the Swan report that was first published a, a little while back, back in 2022. So uh, are you going to tighten those rules? Are there going to be clear entry points and guidelines for doping offences that we don't have in place at the moment? Yes. Um, part of what we intend to do under this new strategy is to fully revise, review and revise our rulebook, make it easier to use, easier to understand, and also firming up and make, bringing greater clarity to what the offences are and how they are to be sanctioned. We're bring, we have started bringing in sanctions guidance already. You remember in the summer, we published new sanctions guidance for breaches of Regulation 10, that's the use of the whip, for breaches of Rule 214. Uh, we're now looking at sanctions guidance for breaches of Rule 212, colloquially called the running and riding rules. Um, and we will continue to do that to achieve greater consistency across sanctions, across race meetings, but also to ensure that the sanctions do act as a deterrent. I mean, in regulation, regulatory sanctions are not supposed to be punitive, but they are supposed to be proportionate and they're supposed to act as a deterrent to anybody else committing the same offence. We need to maintain that principle. Is there any um, move afoot to change the makeup of the IHRB's disciplinary panel? 
At the moment, we aren't looking at changing the makeup of the panel in as much as the panel has expertise on it, expertise in the rules of racing. We have legal expertise. We have, as you know, been using independent chairpersons more frequently just to ensure that that perception of absolute independence from the industry is there. But there is certainly an opportunity for us, which we will be taking up, to do more in the way of training with our panels, uh, more feedback, and that's in our strategy that we will be conducting more case audits, doing more case reviews, feeding back and using all of our experience as learning opportunities to tighten up on our consistency and to bring a consistency of approach and a consistency of thought process. But we'll never get absolute consistency. It's not an algorithm. Uh, no more than the courts themselves, different people up on what look to be the same offences will, under different circumstances, get different penalties. People will always have the opportunity to put forward arguments to mitigate whatever penalty is being considered by the panel. And the IHRB will, where we have arguments to demonstrate aggravation, will be bringing those forward as well. So decisions will still be in the purview of the panels. But we would like to see our panels having the opportunity to work together more between hearings to review them and to consider what might be appropriate sanctions and then to sanction accordingly. Uh, the, the word transparency appears quite a bit in this report. It's it's very much the word uh, of the moment. Um, but just a few weeks ago, um, the Oroctus Committee was told that um, no findings or report have been produced into the serious financial issues at the IHRB that we touched upon during the summer. Um, so I'm, I'd like to know how you as the CEO can square that um, um, opacity with a desire for transparency, particularly with a taxpayer-funded body. There is no opacity and there's no failure of transparency there. We don't have a report that we're sitting on. We simply don't have a report. So the Mazars Review, Mazars Financial Services Company, that's reviewing this issue has had full transparency on all of our records and documentation that they wanted to see. They've been given contact details for all of the individuals that they want to speak with or to interview. We don't yet have a report from them. But as soon as we get that report from them, we have said that the findings and the recommendations will be made public and then we will be working to implement whatever their recommendations are. But we can't be transparent with information we don't have. We can only be transparent when we get the information. That review hasn't concluded yet. And in fact, I was in the Oireachtas Committee, as you said, just two weeks ago. The Oireachtas is the Irish Parliament. And I was in front of the committee and I explained to them that we are very much in the hands of Mazars when it comes to the timing. When they are ready to give us a report, they will give it to us. And, and they when they do that, then we will be back in front of the Oireachtas Committee and we will be accounting for what Mazars has discovered and we will be implementing the recommendations which we will have made public. Given the fact that clearly um, accounting and, and financial management at the IRHRB has come under significant scrutiny, can you give us confidence that you've got the financial wherewithal and resource to be able to execute many of the measures outlined in this strategy, a lot of which involve staff training, increased technology, a cloud-based technology, increased um, uh, anti-doping measures. This is all quite costly stuff. Yes, this is quite costly stuff. We 
will require investment and we will require resource to deliver on some of what's in there. So when you talk about the additional anti-doping, the additional taking of samples and testing of those samples in the lab, that comes at significant cost and that will require the support of the Department of Agriculture and our colleagues in Horse Racing Ireland, because that's where our funding comes from. So anything that's in this strategy that we can do simply by changing how we do things or improving how we do things, anything that doesn't require additional resourcing, we can be confident we will deliver that. But there's significant capital investment required in our IT, and there is significant investment required in additional sampling and testing for anti-doping and that will require additional resources but if the resources are delivered we will come through on that but everything to do with revising and reviewing the rule book bringing in more consistent sanctioning more case reviews more training and feedback with stewards all of that we can do with our existing resource base a lot of that we have already started doing and finally dara can you reassure everybody now that there is um, adequate CCTV as recommended on all race courses covering every runner and covering the individual sample collection stables, the sample collection office area and the hosing stalls and cool down walking area of the sampling units as per the recommendations. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge CCTV system that's gone in. We've over 500 cameras across the 25 race courses here across the stable yards and that does include cameras inside the sampling unit so that we have coverage of the sample being taken and um, prior to this we had a camera ever since covid in the sampling unit anyway with a screen outside it so that the groom could watch the sample being taken the stable hand uh, we've now got that camera in the sampling box linked into the overall cctv system and in fact we have used the cctv on stable yards on more than one occasion to help us with investigating incidents that had taken place on race day. Uh, Dara, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Nick. All right, that was Dara Lachlan, the Chief Executive of the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board. Lydia, were you reassured by that? Do you have questions to ask uh, on top of the ones I already did? Uh, but both in, in in some ways, I think there were some positives to be drawn from it. I think there are some, still some questions to be drawn on, on it. Um, to start with the positives, I liked what he was saying about the expectations from the industry, that uh, external expectations are constantly shifting, that there are ever higher standards and that the industry, and this would apply just as much in Britain as it does in Ireland, needs to meet those expectations and even get ahead of them in a more changing world. And I think that comes back to uh, the people pillar of the uh, strategy. He's talking there about, um, or the document talks there, about appropriate um, continuous professional development for licence holders and also support on that subject uh, for on welfare for licensees. And that's something that the British horse racing industry is also going to have to grasp as well. And I see those as positives. I mean, I think every other professional structure doesn't say here's the hurdle you have to jump in order to get the job and you know that, that then you're good for the rest of your natural life they also expect you to um, enhance and improve your understanding of issues as they develop and as Dara was pointing out the outside world ch um, changes and expectations in society changes and the way we use horses for sport 
definitely falls into into that category but also there are advances in medicine there are advances in veterinary care um and you know moralities also change across across the world so i was i was encouraged to hear that he wanted to to get ahead of that and he wanted to put in some practical measures to help the the members licensees in the in the racing industry be able to meet those enhanced expectations um I liked the idea that the referrals committee was going to be open to the racing media that it enables um, third party scrutiny. You know, the media being the uh, method via which the public can get access to such hearings. We've had this this in Britain for some time and they have been a definite positive. And, you know, the sensitivities that he talked about can be readily managed. I was glad you asked him about whether they might be restructuring the disciplinary process, because at the moment that's how uh, a key way in which Ireland differs in that um, the members of the same large, very large, it should say, I should say, pool of stewards can be drawn to sit on the referrals committee and also on the appeal board. And there isn't that corridor of air that exists between the discipline panel appeal process and the race day stewards that does exist uh, since the Quinlan review in Britain. And that can be uh, both a positive in terms of, uh, as Dara touched upon, uh, the uh, expertise of race day stewards being able to feed into the uh, referrals process and the appeals process but there is also a negative in terms of a, a perceived conflict of interest and that there isn't enough independence in the process he mentioned having an independent chair more frequently but that is not the same as the corridor of air and the total independence with which the uh, discipline panel and the appeal board work in britain as compared to the bha um I like the fact he said you'll never get absolute consistency. I think that is true. I like the distinction between a punitive uh, and, uh, on the other side, a proportionate or a deterrent kind of penalty. I think I think he did, in effect, say that he felt the um, what had been meted out to Tony Martin was inadequate. Um, you know, I, I think you definitely got him to say that. And I didn't feel that he answered your final question about CCTV. You gave him some very specific questions there, and he gave you a much vaguer answer. So... Although there are 500 plus CCTV cameras in Ireland now, and it says so in the report across 25 race course courses, we don't know whether every race course has got them. And we don't know critically from your question whether they are all in all of the areas that has been um, recommended that they are there. So I, I didn't feel that question was was sufficiently answered per personally. And also just a, a general point. I mean, you know, there was... A, Horse Racing Ireland commissioned the 2015 report by Hong Kong anti-doping expert Terence Wan. It recommended that at least 8,000 samples a year should be undertaken to achieve maximum efficiency. Well, we've got up to 6,000 happening each year. There are also 18 recommendations from the April 22 Dr. Swan report, which you references. Seven of those were high priority. You know, the, the overarching thing that I was left with was the fact that the IHRB cannot deliver any of those those things that require money unless horse racing ireland and you know essentially it can be justified to government and the taxpayer uh, funds those measures so basically it it does also expose i think your interview with um, dara uh, the uh, parameters of the ihrb's reach and the fact that so many of the things that it says it wants to do over the coming years it actually won't be able to do unless it gets the money 
Okay, well, this is where we really begin our build-up to the Christmas racing in Britain and Ireland. And the big question now is, will Jerry Colomb, last season's top novice chaser, run at Kempton in the King George on Boxing Day, which is what Gordon Elliott suggested would happen last week, or are they going to go to the Savills chase at Leopardstown? Jerry Colomb, King George, how are you reading the situation at the moment, Lydia? Yeah, I think he's going cold on the project. Um, he was interviewed by uh, Gary O'Brien on uh, Racing TV, and he said he just wants to wait and see what the ground is like and have a chat with Brian Ackerson, who's the owner, um, find out what the whole team wants to do. And then he said, I'm up in the air where to go. Everyone says Kempton's too tight, while Leopardstown could be a hotter race. He worked well the other day, and Jack Kennedy was very happy with him. He's in great form, but we don't need to commit now and obviously there is the possibility of gentleman's game who is the conqueror of brave man's game in the charlie hall potentially being um supplemented for the king george on wednesday or he could run in the savile's chase as well and he's also running in the rob core colors so there's that consideration if of course he runs at all over the christmas period um i mean i I think that, that Kempton might happen a bit too quickly for Jerry Colomb. I don't think he's a slow horse, but I do think he's not. A, he lacks alacrity getting away from his fences. And I think there are other horses, notably Brave Man's Game, who are particularly well equipped for that target. Um, there's always the possibility that um, Jerry Colomb runs in neither and heads for the Cotswold chase instead. The only thing that Gordon Elliott has really stuck to is, um, and that's not meant critically, just the, the thing that he that seems to be set, it, set in stone is not the identity of the race, but that there will only be one more race between now and the Gold Cup. Um, and that could well be the Cotswold chase instead, which would be uh, a race, I think, that would suit Jerry Colomb. So it's, it is possible, I think, that we might not see him this Christmas at all. There are three big prize money staging posts in the Irish jump season. One of them is the Christmas period. One of them is the Dublin Racing Festival. And the other is Punchestown. I just had a little look at the Irish Jumps trainer standings, which make quite interesting reading. Gordon Elliott, €2,775,750. Willie Mullins, €2,165,005. Now, appreciably, you'd expect Mullins to be finishing off really strong and having a very, very good Christmas. But if Christmas is on as even, then... This is a championship that might get a lot spicier, Lydia, mightn't it, than perhaps we suspected? Yeah, I think it. I think it will do. Um, I think this season is going to be a, a, a spicy edition of that, and it does start to influence where you run horses. But I would say particularly more in the latter part of the season. And would it really influence you to run your Gold Cup hope somewhere that you think might not be? conducive to that horse winning the gold cup but yes i take your point there is a huge amount of prize money on offer and that will certainly be playing a role if not the deciding role and not the deciding factor in individual decisions just also on the point of what's happening around christmas i thought the most interesting bit of news over the weekend was paul nichols he appeared on um racing tv's popular tom stanley on sunday show yesterday <laughs> where he um they that that lazy presenter needs to pull his finger out where he announced that Hermes Allen is going to go to the Corto Star at Kempton and because Napa's Hill was going to be struggle to be fit for the remainder of the season. Uh, I'm sorry about the latter, but I'm pleased about the former. Yes, and you you did 
wonder when Hermes Alain didn't appear in the race that the Nichols team won anyway with Ginny's Destiny, um, where, where uh, mate, arguably fortunate to beat Grey Dawning at Cheltenham on Friday. Hermes Alain was talked about running in that race. Uh, when he didn't turn up there, you thought, well, why is that? And then we found out what the reason was on the Sunday. I think uh, Hermes Alain is going to be very, very well suited to the Corto star, um, as as would Nappers Hill. And like you, uh, it's sorry, I'm very sorry that that horse um, isn't, isn't going to be running again this season probably because it was a huge step forward he took when winning the grade two rising stars at um winning canton but Hermes Allen i think has got all the attributes to be a powerful force in that race which is building up rather nicely um lucinda russell also confirmed over the two days at cheltenham that giovinco um the horse that finished a narrow second to uh, stay away fay in the eastern offices stakes at sandown a couple of fridays ago he will be heading towards the quarter star also He's a right good horse as well, um, mm. Giovinco. Looking forward to seeing those two uh, take one another on. Well, decisions are presumably going to be influenced by a number of factors, but top top amongst them is likely to be the, the ground at, at Kempton. A mercifully drier day today after some of the wet we've had recently. Uh, Barney Clifford, the clerk of the course, is with me now. Barney, what's the, what's the situation a week out? Yeah, currently lovely ground, but obviously it's going to deteriorate somewhat with the forecast ahead. Uh, it looks like we could get anything up to 10 mil tomorrow. Um, and then intermittent rainfall, probably not a lot of uh, accumulations, but then it gets very wet again on Boxing Day. So, you know, they're talking somewhere in the region of 5 to 10 mil on Boxing Day itself during race. Okay. So with that, I, I should think it's only going to end up one way, you know. But it's currently beautiful ground, you know what I mean? It's a mixture of good, soft and good, probably 50-50 as we speak. But obviously any rainfall will, will ease conditions. But you're not worried about it getting too quick, for example. You're, you're not worried about You think there's going to be enough rain around that you're going to be on the softer side? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, Kempton Park drains phenomenally quickly and dries quickly. Um, you know, a week ago, I was hoping for some rain. Um, we got that. Um, but obviously, tomorrow now, it looks a pretty wet day. So, you know, in, to, to keep Kempton on the, what I would call a good ground, you need at least 10 mil of rain a week, you know. Um, so we're certainly going to get that. So it'll be a mixture of probably good soft, soft. Um, as you know, if we rainfall on the day, jockeys will probably call it soft. Okay, and um, um, Barney, just just uh, yeah, I know you're you, you're over the years so keen to get the best horses from Ireland into the race, and we we've heard that Jerry Colon might come, might not come, Alaho might come, might not come. What what are your vibes telling you about whether you'll get meaningful participation from across the Irish Sea? My vibes currently at the minute is that I'll get Alaho, Jerry Colombi, and Hewick. Um, obviously, Hewick rainfall won't help his chances, where it probably will help Jerry Colombi's. Uh, and Alaho, obviously, you know what I mean? Good to soft would be ideal for all um, um, because numerically, I think you're probably looking at a maybe six, max seven runner field in the King George. Um, but, you know, let's hope they all stand their ground. Right, there's going to be French interest in the UK on Boxing Day. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, you're going to talk to me about Ilya Francais again because he's going to run in the Corto Star. Uh, that's not... Uh, where I'm headed, because there is another intriguing entry in a Grade 1 on Boxing Day at Aintree, also coming from France. Uh, and this is a filly called July Flower, who, if you've got a very good memory, you might remember. But we'll come to that in a minute. Adrian Cunhas, our French uh, correspondent from Jour de Gallo, is with me now. 
Adrian, uh, just tell me the story of July Flower and why she's going to end up in the new Tolworth Hurdle, now called the Formby Novices Hurdle at Aintree. So, if you look at the rating, she's actually the the best female jumper in France. Uh, She's been quite impressive lately. She's runner-up in a a very good uh, group one in in Otay over hurdles against the best calls of of Foyhold. And uh, she's owned by by an Irishman called Kowland Woods. And she's trained by Michael Serror in Chantilly. And so um, they are really both sharing this dream of winning abroad, not only in France. And it happens that uh, at this time of year, there are not many opportunities to race uh, in France. And that race in entry, the Form B Novice Order Tont. Toldworth Hurdle appears to be the the, the best uh, choice possible for her. So uh, she, she has a lot of class. She has a, a lot of speed. If you can t- speak like that of of, of a jumping horse, uh, she, she start. She's an, she's not a sorbet. She's an AQPS with a very strong pedigree. She started uh, with Michael Serrault. She won a, a Group One bumper in France. Then she was. She was uh, bought by this Irishman, Colin Wood, sent to Henri Bromed. Things didn't work out, work out. It happens sometimes. And she came back to a previous trainer, uh, uh, Michael Serrault, and now she's flying again. And so it, 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 it's a big challenge because both the owner and the, and the trainer are very young. Uh, it's an exciting time. Uh, both have never won a group one, so it's going to be a big day uh, in entry for them. And I, I did mention uh, Ile Francais at the beginning of this interview. It is still the plan, I presume, for him to take on uh, the 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 big the British big guns in the Corto Star. And we, we were just talking about it and saying that Giovinco and MS Allen might well turn up there. Yeah, absolutely. And well, Ile Francais is a machine, so you never know how they how they adapt when they change countries because it's probably less easy for, for jumping horses, but it's going to be a great moment of sport. And and we don't have that many moments where you can uh, uh, check if French trained horses and, 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 and British and Irish trained horses, uh, uh, how, how they compete together, how they compare together. So it's going to be really, really exciting. And, and I, I think there is a, a massive interest in France for, for these races because it's like, um, for once... <laughs> a few French bread will run abroad, but under French training, <laughs> which is not often. Wanted to talk to you about the racing over the weekend from Cheltenham. You were there both days. Now, traditionally, this is not the the strongest Cheltenham fixture. Yet, from a distance, and I was at a distance all weekend, it seemed to me that it threw up more points of interest, more stories, both good and less good, than than perhaps we, we might have expected. Yeah, I think it was high quality. I think it was it was a really thriving couple of days. And I had a question going in my mind about whether the uh, Bula hurdle, uh, no more modernly as the international hurdle, whether its removal to trials day would have a negative impact on the meeting. And I think not at all. I'm not suggesting that these were we were seeing established top class horses, but we were seeing potential top class horses of the future, the likes of Dysart Enos, horses like Grey Dawning, who, but for a serious mistake at the second last, might have beaten Julius Destiny in the novices chase. Um, there were uh, bounce backs from horses like um, Sipage, a, a veteran in the veterans chase. That worked really well. Uh, the cross country race worked really well with, uh, as you said, there was a very sad footnote, which I'm sure we will get to. White Rhino, um, 
um, winning the last as well. Great, great potential for that horse. Then you've got horses like Broadway Boy. He looked very exciting. He won on the Saturday for the Twiston Davis team. We'll be heading towards the Brown Advisory. Um, Abradorn Fassa as well for, for Jack Jones. Um, could be a, a Fred Winter, a Boodle's Fred Winter type horse. Fugitive finally got his in the Virgin Bet December Gold Cup, bringing his trainer, Richard Hobson, a first Cheltenham success. Um, and Fugitive having knocked on the door at all of those big races for such a long time. And then there was also Nurse Susan, who is a, a very decent mare for the Skeletons, and Shanna Bob, who has uh, only had a couple of starts for Nicky Henderson, has already won a grade two on Saturday uh, and could well be heading towards the Albert Bartlett at the Channel Festival. So, yeah, I thought it was a... It was a really good couple of days, strong couple of days. Uh, it stood up really well. There were lots of different stories. As you say, there were highs, but there were also some lows. Yeah, and the biggest low, of course, was the fatality um, of Jess Keel, who had been a, a real star for trainers Ollie Greenall and Josh Guerriero. We've spoken about the horse a lot on this podcast, actually, in, in, mm. in, in the build-up to various assignments, most of which were successful. Uh, and clearly, those connected with the horse... Um, most notably in an interview with you, Henry Brook and uh, Rachel, who looked after the horse, have uh, have been deeply affected by it. I was struck by um, the extent to which um, the way they were affected then radiated beyond Cheltenham uh, and out through social media media and beyond. And, and it, it seemed to have a very powerful impact. And sometimes these things do, sometimes less so. Well, I think the reason that this had such a powerful impact was because, as you mentioned, Henry and Rachel particularly, but also others, spoke so openly about exactly how they were feeling. And um, I, I think you don't often get to see that or the racing public doesn't get often to see that. Uh, there is a, a sort of stiff upper lip element. There's also, I mean, there's also some people would argue a, a sense of proportion element. You know, if you, there would be, I know that some people would say that if the tragedies just remain outside your back door, then, you know, your life is blessed. But it's not really, uh, I, I don't fully agree with that point of view because these horses have become... Uh, household names they do become part of the family in a close-knit team like that of Ollie Greenhill and Josh Guerriero they are going to be um, so much part of the fabric of a close-knit up-and-coming yard that if you lose one particularly one as significant as guests kill but any any horse whatsoever and there is an empty box where there used to be a horse that you saw every day then that is going to have such a devastating impact and I think that generally the people within racing haven't really let show before, let the public into how that actually feels. And obviously it was brought into sharp focus because in the very next race, uh, Henry Brook won for the yard on White Rhino. And so you had encapsulated within about an hour the absolute bottom of where you can be in terms of where horse racing can take you with horses to the to to being in the winner's enclosure you know within an hour's time and that was such a tumultuous journey and it obviously pulled their emotions left and right and they were feeling so many conflicting things at the same time that they let that show and i think that touched the world and opened up an understanding to the sport that perhaps some people might not have seen before and and some people might even might not even have thought was there so 
you know, it's terrible what happened to Guestkill, and I'm I'm really sorry for the yard and connections. But if there can be a little bit of a positive taken from it. It is that I think there was a better understanding of what that means to those closest to a horse when something as terrible as that happens. The loss of Jess Keel so keenly felt throughout the sport. Lydia mentioned there the victory of on Broad and Fasser in the opening race on Saturday, the Triumph Hurdle trial. This was a really notable strike for Newmarket trainer Jack Jones. The horse himself had finished a creditable, though distant, second to the very impressive Burdett Road at the previous fixture. Burdett Road's trainer is James Owen, also based in Newmarket, and I put a call into him earlier and asked him uh, how he felt uh, watching on Broad and Fasser Frank the form in such fashion. Oh, no, exactly. Yeah, it was lo- lovely for Jack Jones. You know, he's a neighbour of mine to have a winner at Cheltenham and that's really given the, given the form a bit of, bit of strength. Um, and um, Bedette Road's, you know, he's training great and we're looking forward to, you know, he'll probably run in the finale hurdle at uh, Chepstow um, on the 27th. Uh, which is no longer a, a grade one, sadly, but still a grade two race and still a, an appropriate stepping stone. Is he the sort of horse that's, that's hardy enough to take a, a few runs or are you going to be quite sparing with him? Uh, we will be quite sparingly with him. He he had a busy and a flat campaign, so he he'll we'll, he, he'll have one more run. Hopefully, all being well, he'll have one more run before Cheltenham. And I know um, it's it's a, a bit of a throwback. A horse who was that good as a three year old, then going going juvenile hurdling. But are you in any way surprised by the enthusiasm with which he's he's appeared to have taken to it? Well, uh, we know the horse from uh, like breaking him in and everything. He's always been a forward-going horse. Um, enjoys his work, and you know, um, Muharar they 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 got plenty of um, plenty of guts about him, and he really enjoys the jumping. He's schooled very well since Cheltenham. I mean, he's, he learnt a lot at Cheltenham, and um, no, I'm looking forward to seeing him on the seeing him next time out. It's an interesting point of technique, that isn't it? Because people would say, well, maybe he doesn't kind of make a a brilliant shape over his hurdles, but he, he's seriously quick from from one side to the other. And I guess you've just got to have your own way of doing it. Yeah, no, he's very quick, and um, he hasn't really gone in a winged a hurdle yet. But uh, you know, he's done plenty of that at home, and I'm sure that will come once the ground dries out a little bit. But he's so good at fiddling, and Harry, he gives Harry that feel. That, you know, he he is very quick from A to B. And that's what you want. I'd rather them go in and get close to hurdles and get over them than being very blasé and winging them, especially a horse like him that's that runs on, you know, he's always a keen forward-going horse. You don't want him taking off outside the wings. And his his owner, Tim Gradley, is currently competing at the London Horse Show. I was commentating on him yesterday for the, for the BBC, but I don't suppose there's too many jumpers who give him as much pleasure as this one at the moment. No, no, t- Tim and... Tim and um, Mr. Gridley, they are really looking forward to this horse, and um, everyone talks about him at the sales. So he's um, he's good fun. Unfortunately, Tim had a pole down yesterday, but you know did a, did a very good round and looked look when what looked a um, not the easiest course. Uh, it wasn't, and it was uh, it was good to see him. It'll be great to see Burdett Road at Chepstow. I suppose the only one question is if it got very very deep, would you still be happy to run him? Uh, no, if it was very deep, we'd probably think about it. Um, but there's plenty, you know, plenty of time and plenty of options during January. There'd be an, there's a couple of options during January for him. So he doesn't, you know, he's had two two runs. He knows uh, he's had plenty of experience on the flat. He's had two runs. We only need to give him one more one more run, whether that be at Chepstow, 
uh, Cheltenham in the other trial or maybe back at Huntingdon that's um, that's where that's the plan all right brilliant James thanks so much thanks very much I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, the career of Damien Oliver a 51 year old Australian jockey who's had an amazing career uh, which came to an end over the weekend when he rode his final winner on his final ride in his uh, hometown of Perth so all the stars aligned it's been a retirement that's been quite meticulously planned I mean not on the Dettori scale obviously <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but I think sort of a couple of months rather than a year or so um, and uh, he he's endured extraordinary extraordinary challenges through his career um, the most significant of which have been the, the deaths on the race course of his father and his brother has been an incredibly tenacious competitor and uh, I think that final victory went down extremely well though not with the stewards who find him 500 quid for a premature celebration <laughs> did they really I didn't realize yeah. that yeah they did yeah mm-hmm. oh gosh uh, as you say I mean you've encapsulated the challenges that he's faced in his life his father ray having uh, died in a race course fall when damien was just three years of age um and then in 2002 just two weeks before he went on to win the se- his second of three melbourne cups his brother jason uh dying in a fall when a horse was injured as well um and he himself suffered a broken spine uh, back in 2005 when he had a fall in Mooney Valley. And he also had to serve a suspension for eight months for an illegal bet on a horse in a race that he was riding against that horse in that race. And so um, that he, he has suffered controversy um, in that regard also. But he's been able to come back from all of those things. He's won three Melbourne Cups, two Cox Plates. He's had more than 3,000 winners in his career. He's got an Australian record of 129 Group 1 successes. And as you said, he signed off in in Tory-esque fashion uh, with by winning the last three races, including on Munhanek in the David, Damien Oliver Goldrush uh, race at Ascot on Saturday. So uh, the best way to, to sign off your career at the age of 51. Uh, Damien Oliver, who has brought the curtain down on a glorious career at the age of 51. Lydia, do you have a tip for me for today? Yes, I am going to Plumpton and a Plumpton specialist. And that horse is I See You Well. Uh, Five of his 10 wins uh, at the track. He's won this race twice before. He ran well two starts back, uh, went second behind another horse that loves Plumpton. But it was a better race than this. Admittedly, it wasn't the greatest run at Ascot last time. You're going to have to forgive him that. But he's back at his favourite track, back down in grade. He's £2 below his last winning mark. Just to check what price he is at the moment. He is about 8 to 1, 15 to 2, 8 to 1. So it is I See You Well who uh, runs in the 2.10 at Plumpton for Seamus Mullins and Mikhail Nolan. Lydia, thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. That was Monday, December the 18th. I'll be back to do it again tomorrow. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.